0: Midlands today on Midlands 103 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official, Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to
1: talk, they talk to Will Faulkner.
2: Oh, good morning. Do you fancy taking a dip in the water today? Would you be well? The photograph on the front of the Irish Independent this morning will give you the shivers. A lady wading out of the sea in Port Marnock yesterday as the winter sun sets. She's wearing a blue swimsuit. I'm surprised the rest of her isn't blue as well. Coming up today, new illegal parking laws take effect in the Midlands next month. All you need to know from half past nine. Why do we spend less feeding our soldiers than we do our prisoners? And... Which jobs will give you the biggest pay rise this year? When you call 0818 300 103 is my number, you can text. Or indeed WhatsApp O eight three thirty ten one oh three powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Alrighty, what are the main stories today? Front of the Irish Independent Workers to get pay hikes. That's very welcome. As high as twenty per cent as skill shortages grow. Now, not everybody's getting a massive pay rise this year. So, which jobs are linked to the biggest increases? Well, there is a shortage, according to Morgan McKinley, by the way, they've done all this research, they're a recruitment agency, they say, uh, although an outlier, quantity surveying is the occupation that will have the biggest increase in pay, rising 40% from... 50 odd thousand a year to more than 70,000 euro per year, which is quite the increase. The main story on the Irish Times, close contacts to have isolation period cut. So if you are triple boosted, so you've had your most recent booster and you come into contact with a confirmed positive Covid case, if the Cabinet approves what is being proposed, then you won't have to isolate at all. But it will be a different case if you are double vaccinated or indeed unvaccinated. So we're expecting confirmation of that once ministers sit down and meet a little bit later. And the front of the Irish Daily Star says, Joe in open prison would end me. This is an interview with Rachel Calley's mum, who says they're very fearful 15 years after the death of their daughter, Rachel, at the hands of her husband, Joe O'Reilly, that he is going to be moved into an open prison. Anyway, inside the papers, Omicron versus Delta. How do you know the difference? Well, the Irish Independent says the main feature is that with, uh, with uh, the, the Omicron variant apart from being less severe, you don't tend to lose your sense of taste or your sense of smell. Another question is whether the antibodies from the Delta variant can protect you against Omicron. And what's beginning to appear is that in December, many cases of Delta were doing the rounds and there are many people being reinfected with Omicron even now in January. So says infectious disease consultant in Beaumont Hospital, Dr. Owen de Barra. And the question again, then, is whether we need to uh, be prepared for further infections in the weeks ahead that will be greater in number than uh, is the case at the moment. And the prediction is four out of 10 people in the world will be infected with Omicron in the next two months. Thankfully, thankfully, it is the milder of the variants so far. Now, Boris Johnson is not a popular chappie, according to the latest research. He, well, he is being asked to clarify if he attended a bring-your-own-booze party in a Downing Street garden during the lockdown in May of 2020. So, this was when the restrictions were at their most stringent in the UK, at a time when, if somebody belonging to you died... You were very limited in your grief because of funeral restrictions and there were so many sacrifices that ordinary people made and he has so far not denied that he and his wife Carrie were at this party with 100 people and according to a, an opinion poll the majority of people in Britain believe he now needs to resign but a Downing Street spokesperson says he's going nowhere we shall see opinion polls do not determine who stays in office he could ride this storm out but a storm it certainly is brewing now back to wages the low pay commission meets annually and recommends to government possibly increases in the minimum wage sometimes they keep it at the rate that prevails the latest research suggests that minimum wage increases between 2016 and 2019 resulted in more money for workers but fewer hours. Now they were ahead overall as the hourly rate climbed from 8.65 to 9.55 euro but some employers had to cut back on the number of hours given to compensate for the increase in costs. So there is a sensitivity there, even at the lower end of the wage spectrum, where you can get more per hour, but you may end up with fewer hours. So not always will it be to your benefit for the minimum wage to increase. And that I I say even if you're not on the minimum wage, it does have that upward effect because... The person who's on 11 euro per hour now feels that bit worse off and all the way up the chain, it reflects. Novak Djokovic is blaming his agent for the big furore in the last few days where he was initially prevented from entering Australia at the airport after he landed. He's now training for the Australian Open, hopes to break records, but he says there was a mistake on the application not his fault though that was his agent's uh, blame he's also apologising for an error in judgement after he tested positive for Covid but subsequently met with a journalist he did not isolate so the story rumbles on and on and on I think there's a degree of Fatigue now about this Novak Djokovic situation. Just get on with the tournament. Let's see how he does and move on. Now, you've got a second-hand car. Good news. Prices continue to increase with, for instance, a 2013 ODA 3 being worth €10,250 two years ago. Two years ago. And it's now valued at €12,400. Go back into the years. A 2009 VW Polo would have set you back €2,890 two years ago. Valued now at €4,000. It's up over 30% in value. Now that's in the Irish Examiner if you wish to read the detail of it. But in the Independent and the Times, you read why... Second-hand values are through the roof because microchips are still in short supply and will be for most of this year, say the analysts. Now, there are some car companies that managed to think ahead, get in their orders early and had a decent allocation for Ireland. Hyundai is one of them, Renault is another, and Dacia. Some of the more premium models are in many ways struggling the most Because they contain the greatest number of microchips. And in some parts of the world, car sales haven't been so slow since 2009. Which was not a pretty time for any of us. Now here's the story that has annoyed me the most today. Let's see what you think of this. I think it was Napoleon who said, An army marches on its stomach. So what would he think of the Irish army? A chef in the Defence Forces is given €4.20 to prepare three meals per day. Now that is €2 a day less than we spend feeding an inmate in one of our prisons. How many meals could you make for €4.20? What would be the quality of it? So, why is this a situation when... The United Nations stipulates the daily ration for military operations should be 10 euro and 50 cent. More than double what we spend at the moment. Why? 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 We'll come back to that between now and 12. Final one for you. Beware the randy stag. If you're taking a walk in the Schlieve Blooms or anywhere else, the deer might wander. Now, it's not the time of year when they're most active. But a case is highlighted in The Sun today of an ESB worker who was on his way to a mast at Kilduff Mountain outside Temple Moor. And he noticed on this lovely summer's day a herd of deer crossing the path in front of him. And he was about to get out his picture, his his photograph. He said "It, it would be a lovely, lovely image to get the camera for. then he got a sense of fear and the hairs on the back of his neck began to stand up. You know that eerie feeling you get. And so as he gazes behind him, not even 15 paces away was a massive stag, his antlers ready to strike. And sure enough, he surged forward he struck John Corcoran, this engineering officer, propelled him through the air. He lost his helmet. He lost his glasses. And as he landed, he sustained serious injuries. So liability has been admitted before the High Court and it is now assessing Damages, But his counsel claims he has lost earnings amounting to €420,000 before you even get into the trauma of it and the physical side of it. Ooh dear. So September, this is when it happened. That's when the mating season is underway. And that's when you need to be very, very careful. Here's a little friendly advice from Paul in Banneher regarding deer. So if you happen to meet one at dusk at night time while you're driving, stop, turn off your headlights, let it go on its way, because he says otherwise it will charge at the source of the light. And I learned this the hard way. At a cost of €1,800 in damage to a stationary car. Oh, I feel your pain, Paul, and I know especially you are a petrolhead. So you would have had that on the double. Now, if you are parking in any of our towns and regions around the Midlands in the not-too-distant future, there will be changes to the parking regulations that you need to take note of, in particular when it comes to the cost of fines. Let's look at County Westmeath, first of all. Barry Keogh is Director of Services with Westmeath County Council. Barry, a Happy New Year. Good morning.
3: Same to you, Will. How are things? Yeah, Good. What do motorists need to know, Barry? Well, I'm sure all motorists, Will, are aware of the fact that you can't park illegally and that if you do park illegally, you could be subject to the -the on-the-spot fine. And generally speaking, Will, that fine is €40 for most offences. There are two exceptions to that. It's a €60 fine if you haven't displayed a current tax disc and it's a €150 fine if you park in a disabled bay. And uh, that has been the way now for a number of years. Then uh, for all fines, if you don't pay that fine within 28 days, it goes up by 50%. So the €40 euro fine goes to 60 and so on. And uh, that, again, that has been the situation for some time. And if you don't pay the fine, then well, within 56 days, uh, it's too late to pay it. On this 57th day and beyond, we can't accept payment and we must prosecute.
2: That means going, going to court. Just-
3: that means going to court and it's the way the law is set up so you could face then a fine of a thousand euro or whatever it might be that the judge might apply in court as well as the cost of a court attendance and the council's costs in taking the prosecution so it escalates significantly beyond the 56th day if it's not paid and the key thing here will is that there is no option to pay beyond 56 days and we must prosecute so uh, people just need to be aware of that if they have a fine and they're sitting on it and they're They're just not paying it. Uh, That's the consequence of that, just to to bear that in mind. And then from February onwards, uh, the the, the minister has decided to increase some of the fines. So the three particular fines that are doubling are, number one, for parking on a footway, on a footpath. It's called a footway in in the law, but it's a footpath, essentially. Or the grass margin adjoining a footpath. Or a, a median. So sometimes people park on medians in the centre of the road on the right-hand side. So again, the the fine for that is doubling. And that's more of a city thing than than it would Mm. be for
2: us. But will cycle lanes perhaps be included?
3: Yes. Number two, then, is cycle lanes and cycle tracks. And again, parking on those is doubling from €40 to €80. And that includes shared use, obviously, footpath cycleways as well. So uh, our cycle tracks, parking on any of those, it's doubling. And then bus lanes, and we don't, again, have too many bus lanes in the Midlands. We hope to have more of them in the future as we move towards active travel and and, uh, public transport, but we don't have them at the moment. But again, the fine is doubling from €40 to €80. And does that extend then
2: at the next stage if you don't pay it within the first window?
3: It does. If it isn't paid within 28 days, again, it goes from 80 to 120. It's a 50% increase on the fine from 80 to 120 euro if it's not paid within 28 days. And again, then, if it isn't paid by the 57th day, then it can't be paid as an on-the-spot fine and it, it, it requires an appearance in court. So it's a a welcome change, Will, in fairness, uh, because we do have an issue with people in the habit of parking on footpaths around uh, our our towns and villages in particular. And I suppose in fairness to people, it can be difficult to find parking. And uh, many of our towns and villages were built when we didn't have as many cars as we have now where we mightn't have had cars at all. So what you've got is a narrow enough road and two footpaths. And people like to park fairly close to their door or to their house. And particularly in the evenings, people tend to park up on the footpath and go in home and come back out in the morning and go away again. But that is that can be an impediment to pedestrians, to people with disabilities in particular, because it's particularly awkward for people who are in wheelchairs Uh, where they come to an obstacle on a footpath they can't get by and sometimes it means they have to retrace their, their journey, go back to get down onto the road because of the height of the curb, and then travel along the road again, go on beyond the obstacle, the car, whatever it is, before they can get back up on the footpath again, which is which is dangerous, dangerous for the person, and dangerous for other motorists, and hugely inconvenient as well for the person in the wheelchair so really, people should never park on a footpath uh, because it does inconvenience huge numbers of people, particularly then as well people with buggies, and uh, again it's very dangerous for maybe somebody with young children you might have a child in a buggy, and you might be have another child with you having to go out around a car to get uh, onto the road to get by so it, it is very dangerous and in cycle tracks, we want to put in more and more cycle tracks and cycle lanes in our in our towns and again it's it's very dangerous for a cyclist to have to go outside cars onto the main carriageway uh, you know where they where they come across them on cycle lanes. The cycle lane is meant to be kept clear, and that that's just the way it is. But parking can be difficult, Will. I acknowledge that, uh, particularly at busy times and uh, when when people might not have parking on the cartilage of their house, which is the case in in many of our urban areas. It is difficult, but at the same time, we need to keep our footpaths and cycleways clear for the people who need to use them.
2: Well, a fine and the possibility of it, that's only part of the equation because on the other side, there's enforcement. And if people believe there aren't enough wardens in an area well they may very well chance their arm and I know this varies from county to county the resources behind it but describe what you have in
4: Westmeath
3: yeah we have a combination of traffic wardens and community wardens and all of them are empowered to apply fines where the fine, uh, an offence has been committed. And in Mullingar, we have two traffic wardens and we have two community wardens. And in that loan, we have one traffic warden and we have one community warden. And we're currently recruiting an additional community warden for that loan. So that will give us seven staff, then seven staff who will be uh, 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 authorized to apply these fines anywhere in the county. The traffic wardens tend to stay in the two main towns of Mullingar and Athlone. And we have more public parking in Mullingar than we have in Athlone. That's why we have an additional traffic warden here. Uh, much of the parking in Athlone is privately held, like the Golden Island Shopping Centre or the Town Centre car park, that's privately managed rather than publicly, whereas most of the parking in Mullingar is publicly managed. So that's why there's a difference there. But the community wardens then, and we will shortly have four community wardens who, who have a van each and they travel around and they, they respond to complaints that we receive or issues that are raised by elected members or things that we see ourselves in our own travels around the county be it the district engineer or the overseer or whoever it might be and they can go to a they can go anywhere in the county and apply the fines where they find that there are offences being committed. So if there are particular areas then that are of concern to people with, who, who, who find that there's a regular issue on a footpath somewhere, be they a disabled person or people with buggies or even pedestrians, uh, just let us know, report it, and we'll certainly deploy a community warden or a traffic warden as appropriate to deal with that matter. Uh, so we are uh, we have resources. The resources are there and they will respond.
2: Some feedback then this is from Kate Taff she runs Tatters of Mount Street in Mullingar it's a ladies clothing shop and she's wondering when it comes to retailers who need to bring stock in from the car indeed out to the car will there be any leniency or exemption for them?
3: Well we have loading bays in 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 all of our towns and those loading bays ought to be used and there are, two, there are two locations on Mount Street where a, a van could park to unload and, and uh, so traditionally then there would have been other deliveries like kegs to pubs and so on and there would be some leniency for them but obviously they need to make every effort not to block footpaths, they have to have a person there and most of them would have they're, they're actively unloading so if somebody comes along that they can guide that person, they can, they can make sure that person is safe getting by so so there, there, there would be a bit of leniency but there would be no leniency if somebody just parks a van or a truck on a footpath or somewhere and just goes away and leaves it there. This is for actively loading and unloading we would always be cognizant of. That. All right,
2: we'll underline that word actively then so yeah. uh, another question is about the person who feels they're in a hurry, they only have let's say one message to get or, or whatever their their reason is, they put on the flashers and they're in and out, they feel, in 30 seconds, will the law be rigidly applied in such a situation?
3: It, it, it will. Uh, there would be no leniency there, in fairness, because... It's easy for somebody to say I was only 30 seconds, but in many cases it's not 30 seconds. If you actually look at your watch, it takes way longer than that to do practically anything. And you might feel it's only 30 seconds, but uh, somebody could come along in that period, and it really isn't fair on that person to be delayed just because you want to pop in somewhere for 30 seconds, which is inevitably is five minutes or 10 minutes, if we were to be realistic about it and if we were to time it. So uh, no, I, I don't. In fairness to other users, to public safety, to, to particularly vulnerable road users, uh, we, we, would, we, wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be lenient around that. Uh, there, there, there is managed parking within all of our towns and villages, and people might have to park somewhere and walk for a minute or two or a few minutes to get to their destination. But in fairness to other road users, really, that's what people should do.
2: A lot of people want you to come back to the question of parking on a footpath. On a street, perhaps is one thing. In a residential area where you're parking outside your own house and maybe you've no other option, is that OK?
3: No. No, it's still a footpath and it's still used by people. Uh, and it should be available to, the, to, the, to, the, to people, to pedestrians and other users, uh, 24 hours a day. So there, there's never a situation, in my view, where it's acceptable to park on a footpath. Uh, people may need to park again Maybe it's a distance away from their house, up the road, down the road, in a car park somewhere. But certainly uh, there there is no circumstance that I can think of under which it's okay to park on a footpath.
2: This is maybe a lesser of two evils situation, though. Let's say you don't park on the footpath, you park just on the road, but you're now narrowing the road and it becomes more dangerous for passing traffic. Again, which is the lesser of two evils in that scenario?
3: Uh, parking on the road is definitely the preferred option. If if there there aren't double yellow lines, obviously. Assuming place, that, so yes, obviously. Yeah. If, yeah, assuming that there isn't a particular hazard associated with parking on the road, it's much better to park on the road. But parking on the road also has the effect of maybe in an urban area or semi semi urban area in a housing state area of slowing down traffic because people have to make their way through slowly. So it's better to much better to park on the road. Uh, park safely on the road and leave the footpath free uh, in practically all circumstances.
2: As perhaps some people fear for their wing mirrors and that's why they try and get in as far as they can. Um, there are a lot of questions on unrelated matters such as uh, prosecution of cyclists on footpaths, things of that nature. Is that a matter for the Gordie?
3: It's a matter for the Gordie, it is, rather than, rather than ourselves. Our traffic wardens aren't empowered to prosecute cyclists.
2: So to summarize, the fines you detailed earlier—they are doubling, and the effect comes uh, from the first of February.
3: Exactly. Yeah, and the uh, regulations have been signed by the minister. So we'll be we'll be embarking on a, 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 a publicity campaign, and not a huge one now because it isn't, it isn't a massive issue, nor a massive change. It's 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 the, the offence was always there. It's just uh, increasing the fine and through our social media and so on, just to make people aware of it before the, the beginning of February. But obviously, Will, people shouldn't be doing it one way or the other, irrespective of the fine, and people, motorists generally know that. But we will be publicising it between now and the beginning of February.
2: Barry Kil, Director of Services with West Westmeath County Council. Thank you for talking to us.
3: Thank you, Will. Bye-bye.
2: Quarter to ten. Next on Midlands 103, or indeed in the next uh, 20 minutes, how much... Do we spend feeding our soldiers as opposed to our prisoners? And why are soldiers the poor relation? Brian Clunan shall be here from 20 past 10 as well, answering your DIY queries. Uh, Some clever young scientists on the menu. And the jobs that will give you the biggest pay rise this year. Now, if you're in for ban, a listener says... That is where the parking warden would make an absolute fortune with these fines on footpaths because nobody seems to park on the road, they say. The footpath is where you pop the car. And well, a prison van was parked on the footpath outside the courthouse in Leash. pedestrians, wheelchair users, anybody using the busy Main Street has to accommodate them. It's an absolute joke. Well... From February 1st a certain number of parking fines will double not just in Caddy Westmeath right across the Midlands uh, but you heard about the enforcement regime in Westmeath uh, the various wardens in Athlone and Mullingar but they can travel in theory to anywhere in the county now on the subject of cars two stories that may be of interest and they are connected so the supply of microchips continues to be a problem for manufacturers and since the supply of new cars is limited, that brings up second-hand values. bought by quite a bit, according to new research from Done Deal. Let's tease this out with the Port Leash petrol head, Bob Flavin. You'll find him on YouTube and at all hours of the night on TikTok. How you, Bob. <laughs> Good
5: morning, Well, Not all hours of the night, no, 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 no. We did a little live last night, all right, but we, <laughs> we couldn't keep going. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, this one example really jumps off the page. A 2009 Volkswagen Polo. 2 years ago you could have picked it up for 2890 euro. It's now valued at more than 4 grand. Yeah,
6: the price has really gone wild. And if the car is even slightly desirable, that being a German car, particularly those German cars have escalated in price a hell of a loss. Uh, long range, people are looking to change their cars out because people are commuting quite a distance from the Midlands to other counties, sort of clocking up huge mileage. They can't get into the new car regime because the the lead time of new cars is very long, sometimes six months, sometimes longer than that. And so they're looking for used cars. That's driving the price up. And because our, our uh, system here is so restricted, because we're driving on the same side of the road as the UK, we can't just simply ring up Germany and get a few extra cars. We can't drink, bring them in from Europe anywhere, because they all drive on the other side of the road. These are the cars are the wrong way around.
2: So how long is this inflation of prices likely to last?
6: It's going to last into the foreseeable future. Semiconductor, uh, the problem with semiconductors is during the COVID lockdown, car companies wound up not producing any cars. So essentially they sent a lot of people home from the factories. But the people producing the semiconductors, that's the microchips and bits, the electronics that connect everything together, they found other employment. So they started making semiconductors for the medical industry. And now the car companies in the medical industry are kind of fighting over who gets the semiconductors first. And obviously the medical industry is winning on that front. And everybody wants electronic everything. So semiconductors are in short supply across every field. Even televisions are having a problem getting this. Go into an electronic store now, you see the shelves are full of kind of older versions of everything. It's all, it's all the modern stuff people want. And when it comes to something like electric cars, we're going to have the exact same problem because mm. they're running the same, the same semiconductors. Electric car sales are rising. But people can't get any.
2: And it tends to be the case, the more premium the car, the more chips it has inside
6: yeah the more electronic stuff that actually goes on the side of the car so like I was driving the other day in a Suzuki Jimny now that's as basic as you can get inside it doesn't have a sat nav, nothing in it but you can get supply of that but Suzuki's actually restricting supply because of the high CO2 from the car uh, so CO2 emissions are playing a factor in this as well because a car company has to put out an overall amount of CO2 for the entire fleet not just one car it's the whole fleet they get a fine if the fleet is too high and Suzuki currently don't have Electric car so they can't lower their CO two emissions, so they have to restrict their supply. so That's another version of restricting supply. For the next six or eight months, I have loads of stories at home. People after buying the car last year, the car is now worth two, three, four grand more than it was last year than they paid for it. Uh, and the same from the year before, even two and three years back. People are making a profit on a car they bought three years ago, brand new, and it's now worth more than it was when it was brand new. So, <laughs> whoever thought
2: cars would become an investment? <laughs>
6: I'm not an appreciating asset for the first time ever.
2: Bob, good to catch up with you. Thank you for taking the call. You can find Bob Flavin on TikTok, Instagram. He's on YouTube as well with the latest reviews. Still to talk about today, which jobs will give you the biggest pay rise this year. And the top doctor in a Midlands hospital is quietly optimistic that Omicron doesn't appear to be as deadly as the previous strains of COVID-19. Nice to have a bit of good news to report on that front. Also, Brian Clunan talking DIY in around 15 minutes. We spend less feeding our soldiers than we do our prisoners. According to a new claim by pd 4 which is the representative group for the Defence Forces, the amount of money spent by military chefs preparing three meals a day is €4.20 per person. Remember that? €4.20. Could you make three meals for €4.20? Because it's roughly €2 a day less than is spent feeding an inmate in the Midlands prisons. Let's tease this out, how it's even possible. Mark Keane is uh, a petty officer Chef in the Irish Naval Service. Mark, grateful to talk to you. Good morning.
7: Uh, good very morning to Will and your, your listeners this morning.
2: Can you describe for us what the meals would involve in a typical day?
7: Well, naturally enough, uh, b- both the Naval Service and the Army, we'd great quantities of numbers, upwards of 100 on the Naval Base and upwards of 250 in the uh, situ in the Army Barracks, especially the DFTC, the Coral Training Centre. Uh, you'd have your, your your basic breakfast, I suppose, which uh, time the weekends would entail a full Irish breakfast. Midweek would be cereals, porridge, fruit juices, cordials, yogurts and fruit, etc. Uh, lunch, then, naturally enough, is three choices for lunch and three for dinner. It's... It's very different to what people would have expected from the Defence forces many years ago. We've evolved greatly when it comes to catering, uh, both in the diversity of the people we serve and also the meals we prepare for people.
2: And when you're preparing these uh, and given the cost, are you mindful of nutrition or what's your guiding priority?
7: Well, that's enough... Food is a high component of morale for, for all three arms, of the arm, for three arms of the Defence Forces and, as you rightly say, the nutrition and also the calorific hunk, because we have a young age demographic, we have an older age demographic, we have different, uh, different ethnic minorities, we also have people who are in training whether it's the army ranger wing or people deploying overseas or undertaking exercises within the army or going aboard ships in the naval service so we are very cognizant of that it is a juggling act it continues to be a juggling act it's something that it is difficult at times trying to you know to, to keep the to keep it afloat as such
2: but for four euro and twenty a day it's a heck of an achievement and all credit to you what's on the menu
7: uh, it, it varies from day to day. You, you have to likes of your well, wheat torments, wet dishes, your curries, your bolognese, your tagatellis, your pastas dishes, your your, uh, ch- your rice your dishes, your rice dishes. Uh, Sundays, you know, we do traditionally what you a carvery lunch would be the best way of describing it. Midweek, it could be anything, you know, from a, a carvery to, uh, you know, oriental or Mediterranean style of cooking, Italian style of cooking.
2: Are you ever concerned, Mark, as to the quality of the ingredients, given the budget?
7: Uh, at, at, at times it is, and uh, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be telling the lie if I wasn't uh, saying that to you. It is difficult, and it is a concern, especially, you have people who are trained to the highest standards, both in the Defence Force, the School of Catering, the McKee Barracks, and also in the various uh, colleges around the country, the Catering Colleges. They, they want to practice their craft. They, they have a skill set that is in high demand in civilian street and they have the same experience the same qualifications and then we ask them to do less and more continually but you'd see it yourself if you eat out well you know the price of foodstuffs has gone up to no fault of anybody's whether it's COVID or brexit but that still has been reflected in what we got if i may just say that the figure 420 this dates back to 2008 pre-2008 when it was originally 5 euro 20 cent and they even cut it by a euro back then as a cost-saving exercise now, inflation, food inflation and inflation in the economy has, you know, been rampant and has outpaced, you know, the cost of living has gone up drastically recently, but we haven't kept pace with that, you know, the headline figure is still 4.20 a day, so as you say, it is of concern to us, and more so we have the, the senior POs in the Navy, company quartermasters and the Army BQs, you know, rations there, they're pinned to the collars. Of these are the people who are trying to order these foodstuffs, balance the books as such, give us the food that we can feed the, the soldiers on the ground, the sailors at sea, or the airmen in the airport. And it is getting harder each day to try and to juggle it as such.
2: The United Nations has suggested a figure of €10.50 and 50 a day for vital military operations. Again, just to compare that, your budget is €4.20 per day. So, what could you do with the difference?
7: Well, we could drastically improve the foodstuffs that we get. We could vary the menus and you could also... it allow you to plan for, for different events and different functions because currently it's on it's very ad hoc. You're, you're trying to operate a system, even though we're not primarily a system that operates on profit and loss. We've entered into that mentality because we can't afford, afford to have food waste. We can't afford to be wasteful or we can't afford, you know, I suppose, to be flawless. So every everything has to be accounted for and everything has to be used basically
2: are there compromises you have to make that you would rather not
7: it, there always is unfortunately in the sense that as I said you know the skill set that our, our members have as chefs in the defence forces that, you know that they'd like to, to demonstrate that and you know to, we can't afford especially with the younger chefs coming through you know for the practical work that when they come back from college we don't have I suppose the, the license other premises would have to, to allow them to practice their craft or to, to try different things because the margins, are, they're just too tight. Like you couldn't have somebody practicing, you know, different recipes on the basis that, uh, you know, it's okay, you know, trial and error, we can't mm-hmm. have that because mm-hmm. we, we're relying on standard menus that are tried and tested, measured out to within a gram or an ounce to make sure we get the best value. So it does. it's not right in that sense for those people.
2: Is there ever resentment among the troops, knowing, for instance, that prisoners have a bigger budget for their food?
7: It, unfortunately, our members, I suppose, are used to the situation where sometimes they feel that they're being treated less favourably than other sections of society, or the civil service. It's sometimes it, it's just part of military life. Uh, I'm sure if you spoke to the chefs in the prison service, they'd tell you that you know. We're, Their budget isn't sufficient as well. You know, if you take their figures, two euros greater than ours, the United Nations figure for Overseas Service is another four euro above that to ensure they'd say that they'd have the same difficulties as we're facing at present.
2: How is the budget set, Mark, and by whom?
7: It's it's done by the department, actually, enough, and it's run through the food cell in McKee Barracks, Dublin, and what would happen is contracts are tendered out, so you have 16 military locations within the Defence Forces, both Army, Naval Service and Air Corps. So you would tender for a contract between one year and three years your basic foodstuffs, your bread, your milk, your vegetables, your meat, your poultry. It's tender only unit prices awarded. Uh, it's, the quality is set, a standard is set the same way that you'd expect in any supermarket you go into. And then the tender is awarded, you know, to, to a company. Uh, they supply the Defence Forces in, in the case of barracks or the naval you know, the naval base you could be rationed three times a week, ships would be rationed before the start of the patrol at the end of a patrol. Overseas they would draw their foodstuffs from a, a central location overseas. So it's basically down to government.
2: Wearing your hat as president of P D fora, how are you going to pursue this?
7: Well naturally sure enough, the first thing we'd like to do is engage with the department and the, the Minister and first of all reverse the cut which was one euro which brings us back up to 5.20 and then address the, the whole situation uh, the, the cost of food inflation, the cost of foodstuffs has spiralled, we need to reflect that in the allowance that we're giving but that we've been given to work with uh, I think rather sooner than later we need to do it
2: By the way a comment from a listener, they're wondering would you take private sector work because surely with that efficiency with that ability to turn around food on such a meagre budget your skills will be in high demand.
7: Well, there is a shortage that chefs within the civilian industry recurrent are current, and we do see a high turnover turnover of members of the naval service and the army. Chefs depart after a set period of time. We're no longer an attractive employer. Unfortunately, we do see people go, and they have that skill set where they're both military trained, so the discipline element of the keeping and stuff, but also that they can turn something around very quickly, as your listeners said. They're on €4.20 a day.
2: Mark Keane, nice talking with you. You're president of PD4. Thank you for taking the call. He's also a a petty officer chef in the Irish Naval Service. And if you're a Defence Forces member, give me your feedback. What is the menu like? How do you rate the quality? Knowing, of course, that perhaps there are people listening from uh, Custom Barracks in Athlone or indeed maybe the Curragh Camp. Or if you're an ex-Army person, um, have standards changed over the years?
8: And now to the guidelines he has to adhere. But of DIY
3: he has absolutely no fear. Will will wish a happy new year to our Mister Fixit, Brian Clunan is here. Well, he's on Zoom. Know
5: it all.
2: Good morning, Brian. How are you?
4: I am good. Good morning, Mr. Managing Director, Sir. Congratulations. How are we?
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. I thought you were going to maybe uh, slag the other party on his retirement, his pitching of the hammock, lounging back with the cocktails, and well, I, I probably not it. in this I weather.
4: See it. I, it, and it will really suit him. I have to say, retiring retirement will suit him because because he likes doing very little.
2: <laughs> you can get away with that now, can't you?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: What is happening in the world of DIY?
4: Um, not a huge amount. It's, it it tends to be a lull now in January. They, although it's a funny season, the so normally this time of the year, you know, you can't do too much work outside. And of course, you know, it's it's been mild. It's been it's been weather that you could do a lot of work outside. I spoke yesterday to. Um, catch grenin who was talking he he said that if anybody heard him he would be hauled off to a mental hospital he was pruning his roses which was still in flower i mean they should they should be absolutely wiped out and uh, before the the storm a couple of weeks ago he was pruning his roses and he was talking to the roses saying God, now I'm sorry to be doing this because, you know, you're looking so well, but it's for your own good. And uh, he said, if somebody if somebody popped over the hedge, they would literally haul him off to be to be uh, analysed. Yes, I,
2: I thought initially he was going to feel mad for having to prune them so late in the season. But talking to them is a bit
4: unusual, all right. Well, they say it's very good for plants to give them a bit of talking to every now and again. You know, it's who knows, you know, and it's probably good for yourself. Um, because you have so few friends in the world, anybody you can, anybody that'll actually listen to you uh, is good.
2: Well, I'm not saying the roses would listen to me, but when you are out in the garden, it's very mindful. It's good for the relaxation and managing those stress levels.
7: Now, it really is.
2: let's get down to business and 083 103 on text and WhatsApp is the best way to reach us. First query, lads. We had an extension added to our kitchen last year, says Anne-Marie. The contractor put on what we were told would be a washable paint with a silky finish. It's a very busy kitchen. We have five small children and there are already quite a few splatters and marks on the wall that won't wipe off. So is there a better paint we can use Because I don't especially like the silky finish either, she says.
4: Right. Well, I suppose traditionally for years, uh, silk emulsion would have been used in a kitchen or a busy area like that. And then it changed ever so slightly to mid-sheen. So mid-sheen was less silky, less shiny than um, silk emulsion, but still has a lot of vinyl in it, which gives uh, a slightly a sheen, it's not, you wouldn't call it shiny, it's not like a lost paint it's not even like a satin paint, it's even less than that again, but again I would, we would regularly get people in and they would be buying in, in the past silk or it's safe to do a bedroom or to do a sitting room or a hall or whatever, they'd be buying silk and I would often ask the question, do you really need silk or nowadays do you really need mid-sheen and they'd say what do you mean? And I'd say well do you ever wash the walls? And of course nine times out of ten people say no, I I don't ever wash the walls. I just repaint every now and again. So if you never wash the walls, well, then there's no need to use mid-sheen because the mid-sheen is more washable. And the upside of it is, the positive is, it is more washable. The downside is that it has a sheen on it and therefore any discrepancies or marks or uh, damage done to the wall is really, really highlighted and shown up. But, so I would normally say in those areas that you use matte, you don't use uh, mid-sheen, use mat. Now, having said that, in a kitchen, and particularly in this case, a busy kitchen with lots of little hands around the place, you do need to use a washable paint. But nowadays, all, nearly every brand of paint has a washable mat, or indeed, in some cases, a scrubbable mat. So that's what, you, it is more expensive. But the beauty of it is, it stays clean so much longer. So if you're happy, if some people paint every now and again, just because they like to change the color every now and again. But if you're a person who paints only when it needs to be repainted because it's gone, you know, dirty, grubby, whatever, well, then there is a definite merit in paying a bit more and getting the likes of this Clean Extreme, or there's a few other brands out there, but basically scrubbable matte emulsion paint and when you paint with that it stays clean infinitely longer so that's what I would suggest to this is so use the Clean Extreme or something similar a scumable washable mat that will stay clean much much longer and if it does get dirty it just wipes off very easily <laughs> you're
2: going to love this one so you know how you should always check your pockets before you put clothes in the washing machine
4: uh oh right so,
2: Yes. This caller says the rubber seal on my washing machine between the door and the drum has three holes in it due to nails and screws being left in my pockets. Oh, no. What is the best fix before the wife finds out what has happened? She's already asking, why is it leaking?
4: Well, honestly, the only fix is to get a new rubber. And it's not a big deal. Um, You'll be either going to uh, someone like Expertise... Uh, there are people who specialize in, they're based here in the Midlands and they specialize in spare parts for domestic appliances. That's all they do. Or else go to the manufacturer's website and now you will need the make and model number of the appliance. So you normally need to pull out the machine and there'll be a little metal plate in the back and it'll it'll say it's a, you know, hot point num- model number one, two, three, four. And then it's not a huge job to replace the rubber. Um, and... Nowadays, as you know, you're very good at, I'm not, but you're very good at going online and there's usually somewhere there that has a, a sorry, now turn off the landline. Um, there's usually something that has a, a YouTube video that shows how to do it. Um, Short term, if you want to do something very quickly, you would simply, If he, it sounds as though he has identified the holes. So if he has, just get some Tech 7 or Stixol and seal over the holes, a good patch over the holes. Now you need to get it clean. There will be a deposit of kind of greasy Build up down in there so you need to wash that out really well hot soap your water and then leave it dry and then you can put on your tech 7 or your sticks all and if he's if he's got pocketfuls of nails or screws he probably has a tube of sticks all in the van in the garage, very likely whatever yes, it is. Yes. and 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 that will do short term now look short term solutions have been known to be there two years later And, you know, it won't be really visible, particularly if it's a clear stick saw that's used. Um, You don't really pay close attention to that rubber seal until it's a problem.
2: By the way, the next time that person calls on the landline, will
4: you put me on? I've just turned it off. (laughs) We'll scare the living hell out of them. Sorry. Sorry about that.
2: (laughs) Brian Clunan is here from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore until 11. And he's happy to answer your question on 0818 300 103. Still on the agenda today. Which jobs will give you the biggest pay rises this year? And the top doctor in a Midlands hospital is quietly optimistic. Based on the Omicron variant's performance so far, this wave should be milder than anything gone before. Brian Clunan is here in the meantime from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore. Next query coming from James in Portlaoise who has painted the plinth at the rear of the house three times this year. He says presumably three times in 2021. The dog has it destroyed from rubbing all along it. Now I know what I'd like to do but I'm not allowed to say. So please help when it comes to cleaning it or painting it especially if any such products would repel the dog
4: yeah i don't know there's no paint product that repels the dog now there are various scents that dogs don't like um, they don't like garlic they don't like lemon um, so you could consider doing that i suppose if it's being if it's being rubbed off the wall you're probably better so traditionally years ago um particularly on on streetscape so you know if you live out in the country the plinth is always painted with an emulsion paint so the wall and the plinth will be painted so the wall will be painted white and the plinth will be painted black and you'll be using you know a black uh, exterior emulsion to paint it now very often in town situations where it's getting a lot more abuse uh, people would have painted the plinth with an oil-based paint um now that does mean using i would say in this case an oil-based primer followed by an oil-based paint. And that will be much, much tougher. It will stick to the wall better, but you do have to use a primer. So that involves getting rid of all the paint that's there, giving it a good scrub, uh, ideally power wash to get rid of anything that's going to flake off and then get an oil-based primer. mostly people tend to go for dark colors on a plinth. And the reason being that when the water hits, when the rain hits the ground, it splashes back up. And if you paint the plinth, the whole purpose of the plinth really is to is to have something that is a darker color that doesn't show up the dirt uh, 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 on the way that an ordinary emulsion paint, white emulsion paint or light colored emulsion paint would. Um, so I would say do it with an oil-based paint and then maybe look at getting uh, I know you can get gar- dried garlic sent off granules that you put in the ground to keep they because they really don't like the smell of that, um, and anything that the dog doesn't like the smell of will help mm. keep it away from that area. So those two things combined hopefully would work to keep to keep it to keep the dog away, or to keep the the pain <laughs> from taking off yes, and yes, the yes, dog yes, away. Yes, yes, yes.
2: Seems dogs and vampires have something in common then in their distaste for garlic.
4: Oh, garlic, yeah. (laughs) Probably for two slightly different reasons. Indeed.
2: Margaret in Moat asks, when she turns on her washing machine, a smell resembling a bad drain comes up through the sink and she's wondering what is the cause and solution?
4: so you have probably a bit of a partial blockage so it's always a good idea to get some caustic drain and blocker every now and again and just put it down i would say put some down the washing machine outlet so that means pull out the washing machine there'll be a gray hose coming out the back of the washing machine uh, put put some of the take out the gray hose. it's going down into a white pipe coming out of the ground so put some of the. well i'd always say put some hot water down first And then put down some of the caustic solution. Do the very same thing in the sink. Leave it out. Leave it overnight. And make sure and leave the washing machine out that someone doesn't inadvertently turn on the washing machine. I know it'll offend the eye to see it left out. But you don't want someone turning on the washing machine when the grey hose has not gone back into the pipe. Um, And then the following morning, flush it. So that means, you know, in the case of the sink, fill up the sink to the full the full of the sink and pull the plug and in the case of the the white pipe coming out of the ground a kettle of water doesn't have to be hot it's all about the volume of water to flush it out Um, and that there's a partial block there's a build up there so by by cleaning out the pipes every now and again it stops that build up it cleans out the pipe and therefore will stop the smell
2: all right next query Will I remember in the past Brian would recommend taking down the Christmas lights and wrapping them around something what does he suggest?
4: Well, I mean, nowadays you can buy the little... Uh, for a couple of euros, you can buy a... I don't know what they call it. It's a it's a thing specifically for wrapping the lights around. But it's literally anything at all. You know, it can be an empty cereal box and wrap it around it. Now, the plastic thing, especially for it, has a handle and it has it has two ends on it to stop the, the cables you, yeah. from, from coming off. But a cereal box, anything at all. Just don't roll it in a ball wrap it around in a reel on a reel on something and then put it put it into a bag and tie the bag good and tight and always remember when you're putting them away when you're taking the bag down again if you're putting them somewhere cold that's why the plastic bag is good because it stops moisture getting in at it but if you're taking them down don't take them down straight out of the attic in cold weather and plug them in straight away take them down and let them acclimatise to the to the temperature, and make sure that to put them somewhere warm and dry for a day. That if there was any condensation, that it evaporates away before you plug them in.
2: It's well worth doing. It'll only take you a few seconds now, but will save you minutes and minutes, and maybe longer even once December rolls around again.
4: Absolutely.
2: On an aside, a Clara listener says, Apologies if this is out of context, but am I the only person who sees a likeness between Brian Clunan and the Dancing with the Stars judge, Brian Redmond? I reckon they could be brothers.
4: <laughs> yes, the similarity has been made before, but of course, the difference is I'm always very nice to people. Well, except for you, except for you of course.
2: <laughs> OK, Flanders. Next, <laughs> Nula wants a recommendation... She needs to clean grout in her kitchen that is especially bad-looking around the cooker and the sink.
4: So presumably wall grout. Well, actually, it makes no difference. So, yeah, look, get a grout cleaner. If it's, if it's really bad, you may need to, to mix it stronger. I would always say get a concentrated grout cleaner as opposed to a ready to use one because the concentrated one goes a lot further but the other reason being that if the rec- if the mix is you know a 10 to 1 mix well then you use the 10 to 1 mix in most places but where it's bad which in this case would be around as 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 Neula says the kitchen sink and the the uh the cooker then you go more concentrated but put a bit of effort in get a, a scrubbing brush give it a really good scrub and. Uh, make sure that that you put the effort in because after you get it clean you i would suggest strongly that you uh put a sealer on afterwards so the sealer on a wall you can get a spray-on sealer so the spray-on sealer you literally it's like a, a varnish you spray it on and then you wipe it off And because the grout you don't have to worry about getting it on the on the tile you just wipe it off the grout while while off the tile while it's still wet and you make sure that that it's good and clean but it stops it means that the grout is no longer getting dirty because it has like a coat of varnish completely clear you won't even know it's there but it has a sealer on it and it makes it much much easier to clean in the future now on the floor tiles i would say do the very same thing get it really really clean put in the effort in getting it clean but in this case i would suggest using there's various different lithofin and hg do floor grout sealers and it's a little bit thicker and therefore more heavier duty and it's actually easy enough to to apply it on the the floor because it just goes on the grout but because the grout is slightly lower than the tile it's actually very easy to put it on without marking the grout sorry without marking the tile Mm, apologies mm, mm.
2: Uh, By the way, a few people have recommendations for wrapping your Christmas lights. One person says a roll of tinfoil is what they use. Another suggests a Pringles tube. Or the roll
4: roll from the... What they're saying, I think, there would be the empty roll. Yeah, the the cardboard inside. The cardboard roll, that's Mm. very good, yeah.
2: Mm. Or a Pringles tube, a little bit thicker.
4: Oh, yeah, very good.
2: Next query. Brian, I use soda crystals in my washing machine... And it cleans the machine as well as all the pipes and the drains. That's from Jackie. Would that be
4: useful in the other scenario earlier? This, the soda crystals, yeah. It wouldn't be as strong as the caustic soda, but it is, it is, it is a useful thing to do and it's, it's less harmful to the environment, I suppose, as well.
2: Con in Clombalogue is asking what he can put into his septic tank to kill the bacteria.
4: No, he doesn't want to kill, but the one thing you don't want to do in your septic no, tank because is kill that's the bacteria. You want loads everything. of bacteria in your septic tank, so you actually want all the things that you put into the septic tank are designed to encourage bacteria, which kill, which basically eat everything, all the solids in particular that go down. And if you had no bacteria in your tank, it would just fill up completely. And if your tank, if, if people use too much antibacterial agent mm. in the house, or too much bleach, they end up doing terrible damage to the septic tank and they have to get it emptied and then they have to start the whole process all off again by putting in a bacterial agent into it to get it active again.
2: Yeah, it's one of the problem with uh, modern cleaning solutions that invariably most of them end up in the septic tank and I presume they gather away at the bottom and eventually you've no choice but to empty it out then. Exactly.
4: Are, are, there, are,
2: are there natural or, or shall we say tank-friendly alternatives?
4: Well, I mean, you remember years ago the people used to say that uh, if they were driving along the road and they saw, you know, a dead rabbit or a dead whatever it is at the side of the road, they would pick it up and uh, throw it into the safety tank. Uh, And that was all about, you know, creating bacteria that would naturally occur when you had something dead like that. And again, sometimes people used to do if they if they got the turkey they would clean out the turkey and take all the guts and so on and put it in a bucket somewhere and let it get good and maggoty and throw that into the septic tank now nowadays that's not necessary there are loads of different septic tank activators and septic tank maintaining solutions and in those cases you just add them to a bucket of warm water and you leave it for a few hours to become alive and active and then you pour it down the toilet and you flush the toilet, and of course, that brings it all straight to the septic tank. Now, if you have an easy way of lifting the lid and the septic tank and pour it in, that's fine too. Um, and but you have to be careful with, with that obviously because there are dangers to messing with the, your septic tank. Um, so years ago, again, people used to say that if you could stir your septic tank, so if you had a long pole, if you could lift the lid and a long pole and stir it, but of course, that can release methane gases are gases that are quite noxious so you have to be very careful about doing that but oxygen does help the septic tank but you just have to be very very careful with it by the way i got a nasty text from Kat grenan who did not like me revealing his uh his propensity for chatting to the roses <gasps> but not quite nasty but there was certainly there's a hand gesture there that i I don't have it, my emojis for some reason but Catch has managed to find a single finger hand gesture emoji that I didn't realize was there.
2: He's telling you that you're number 1,
4: Brian. I'm his uh, he's he, or maybe well I'm either number 1 or maybe he's my number 1 fan. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, let's just assume either. Anyway, next <laughs> query from Martin. This isn't so much a query as it is a statement on our last item. He says, it's always been known that prisoners in Port Leach were better fed than soldiers. Soldiers are treated as second-class citizens. Just imagine making three meals a day with a budget of €4.20. How they manage it is a credit to the chefs in the Defence Forces.
4: And, absolutely. And but, can you imagine, A, trying to do it in that budget, and, and, and then B having to do the same thing over and over again because you can't, like every chef wants to be adventurous and try new things and I could go at home. My wife is a fantastic cook, as I often mention, and I could go for weeks without ever, me- eat months, without eating the same meal again because she loves trying out things. And, you know, you can imagine if your budget is so limited, you can't take chances, mm. you can't try out new things because you just can't afford to. And that must be very frustrating for the chefs as well as for the people eating it.
2: I think the patience of Defence Force personnel is being tested a
4: lot in recent years. Yeah, in many in many ways.
2: But let's not go down that road. Our subject now is DIY. More queries on the way in just a moment. Also after 11, the jobs that will give you the biggest pay rises this year.
0: Call us on 0818 300 183 and put our tool man to the test. Mr. Fixes on Midlands A 3 with
1: Brian Cleaning
2: The next challenge is to clean the glass in the door of a range. We're trying an oven cleaner, which is very good, but sometimes it's difficult to clear away this tar like substance. We have tried wet ashes, we have tried Jiff, neither to any avail. Brian.
4: Um, well, I suppose I'd, I'd be tending to avoid the ones that work by basically sanding it off. So the, the GIF works. It's a brilliant product, but it's very slightly abrasive. So you just be worried long term about using something abrasive on a glass surface because it could eventually leave it slightly opaque, which is not something you want. Um, so the two things, I mean, there are various spray on stove glass cleaners and some of them work better than others so sometimes it's a case of finding the one that works particularly well for you but if it's really bad then i would say to you use the any of the the paste type oven cleaners so don't use the spray on ones because when you use a spray on product it it has to be diluted down to a very thin liquid to be able to go through the spray and obviously it's very handy because you just literally spray it on But because it has to be thinned down so much, there's two things. One, the the, the concentration is now thinner because it has to be diluted. And secondly, because it's very liquidy, it runs away very quickly. So if you get the paste type oven cleaners, they are much more concentrated but they also stay in place much better so now you can brush it on and leave it there for about 20 minutes and it's softening and softening and working and dissolving and then when you wipe it off it will be spotless so it takes a little bit more effort but not a lot it comes in a jar you got a paintbrush, brush brush it on leave it for the 20 minutes use a nylon pad to like the yellow or green the, the green sponge the yellow sponge with the green pad give it a rub and then wipe it off a kitchen roll, and then wash it completely to make sure that it's all gone. But that will leave it spotless.
2: Joe wonders if you remember ever selling a tinker, or are you too young? He recalls buying them years and years ago.
4: Yeah, so that's a pot mender, um, and they're not available. We still sometimes get people who make them. So a pot mender, or a tinker as it was called, because it repaired It repaired pots and pans, basically. So if you had a little pinhole, a little hole in a pot or a saucepan or a a kettle, people would repair it. Nowadays, of course, people just throw it away. You know, the day of repairing things seems to be nearly gone. But back then, what you did was you got... It was like two big washers. So you can imagine a a, a round, say, two two, two, two two-euro coins or bigger um, and with a hole in the centre and you you put one washer on the inside one washer on the outside and then there was a piece of cork in the middle and of course the cork was able for the heat it was like a rubber washer but it was able for the heat and then you put a nut and bolt through and you tightened it up and you know nowadays as I say if somebody has a saucepan it would just get the bin back then everything money was so hard come by and 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 you you scrimped and scraved and and you try and save everything and try and maintain everything as best you can. So that's, that's exactly what the pot or tinker was. That's going back a long time, but I do remember selling them.
2: Yes, but is there also a touch of economics at play in that it's probably far more expensive now to repair than it used to be? And the gap between buying new and fixing up is narrower.
4: Absolutely. So we only just before I I came up here to, to talk to you, I had a lady in and she was looking for, she was wanting to know, could we still get flask refills? So people years ago, if they bought a thermos flask and they went off to work and of course something happened and the flask got broken, they could buy a replacement refill. And of course, what all the flask people ended up doing was they made the flask refill so expensive. It was nearly as cheap to buy a flask. And then they stopped producing the flask refills because they said no one was buying them. And of course, the reason no one was buying them was they had made them so expensive, it didn't make sense. But certainly today, it's it's all very different to do. As you say, they make life difficult. Manufacturers do not want you repairing things. They want you to replace them.
2: Indeed. Next. Can you recommend a way of getting oil splatters off white subway tiles which are behind the cooking hob in the kitchen? That's from Naomi.
4: Well, if they're not cooked into place, so they shouldn't be. So, really, any of the degreasers, the likes of um, the likes of crud cutter, or foil, or DF two, or grease away, any of those degreasers should do it, no problem. Again, put it on, leave it to work for about ten or fifteen minutes, and then use your nylon pad. Now, if that's not working for some reason, it could have been very hot going on, or the you know there could be a lot of heat there. So, if it's baked into it, well then. The oven cleaner paste that I mentioned earlier will do a very good job in that. Again, just brush it on, give it 20 minutes. Now, do be careful where it loves, where it Don't get in your eyes. If it gets in your hands, you'll get a little bit of a burn, but you really don't want to get into your eyes. Um, but that will do the job if the, the normal grease away, crud cutter, any of those things, which should work in the normal way. But if they don't, then that's what you'll have to do.
2: Brian, always grateful for your time. We'll chat again next Wednesday.
4: Thanks, Will. And can I just say, a very happy and well-deserved and long retirement to Albert Fitzgerald. He's, he's, he's done a fantastic job over the years and I really, really wish him well.
2: And he says that with sincerity, which is... I certainly do. Surprising. Well done. Good achievement, Brian. Uh, thank you, indeed. Indeed, we're all wishing our managing director, former managing director here at Midlands 103, Albert Fitzgerald, a very, very happy time pitching up the hammock and relaxing and, well, hopefully he gets the sunshine for it. Now, on the way a job where you can expect a 40% pay rise this year. Imagine that. That's one of the curses of this pandemic, the gap between the industries doing well and those that are struggling. But if you have this job title, time to knock on the boss's door. I'll tell you what it is after the news. You get an insight into some of the clever young BT scientists from around the Midlands. And I'll tell you how to turn 10 euro into 4,000 euro. Indeed, money is very much the focus of this next conversation because some workers can expect pay hikes of 20% this year. And indeed, if you are a quantity surveyor, knock on the boss's door and say, Oi, I want a 40% pay rise. Much of this is down to supply and demand when it comes to skills. But it doesn't apply in every industry. Colin Donnery is Chief Executive of FRS Recruitment, which has offices here in the Midlands. Indeed, he's from Camros in County Leash. Morning, Colin. Morning, Will. How are you? Very well, thank you. We're basing these numbers on the Morgan McKinley Irish Salary Guide. Does it match what you're seeing?
5: Um, look, in, in Look, in general there's a huge sort of lack of, of people available across across all sectors. I think it, the problem is when you read the headline, 20% increase in salaries, like very few people will get a 20% increase in, in, in salaries this year. So you look at it in two ways, the people that stay in the job and then the people that move. So the people that stay in the job, obviously inflation pressure, like it's top of people's minds, electricity is going up, you know, petrol is going up, everything is going up. So, and you're looking at around 5 to 6%. So, I think a lot of people probably have in their head 5 to 6%. Um the problem for businesses is I I think on the back of the pandemic that a lot of businesses really can't can't afford that. So you you'll probably see on average I think 3% increases um in general for people who stay. Those that move certainly um you know are, and and this what what happens in in reality is uh, out there at the moment someone gets offered a the job they they will get probably a 10% minimum increase on, on what they're earning at the moment. They come back to their employer and they say, look, I'm off. And the employer goes, bloody hell, we can't afford to lose you. Mm. And we'll either, we'll, we'll, we'll go close, maybe not match, but we'll go close to wanting to keep them because they know how difficult it is to actually replace people at the moment. So.
2: But it is industry specific. If you're in an intensive energy business, you're using up a lot of electricity, uh, burning a lot of fuel, in a fleet of cars or trucks and so on, your costs have inflated massively. So where are the industries with the extra cash to splash?
5: So IT particularly, so we're just seeing uh, massive, uh, massive growth in in IT, obviously, we've had lots of international companies come into Ireland, you know, over the years, and there's just a complete lack of people, particularly in in IT development. You know, you're talking, like, I started in IT recruitment 25 years ago. A developer, you know, back then, you know, with three years' experience, probably earned 35,000. There, You know, someone with three years' experience is earning close to 100,000 euros now. It's sort of bonkers type stuff, you sorry, know, we're back sorry, to... Sorry.
2: Stop there. Three years into a job, wet behind mm. the ears out of college, and you yeah. could be earning six figures.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that's like, the demand is just massive in, in, in those really high-tech um, high tech areas. And one of the things that's fueling this, you see, typically what we did here in Ireland and we're quite good at doing it was attracting international IT people and international workers and, um, Covid nineteen has stopped that. So effectively, we've had very, very few people relocating to Ireland in the last eighteen months. In fact, the government stopped uh, and well put a pause on the work authorization visas and um, and work permits. So it's just gone. You're seeing, um, you know, just uh, growth that are they're very difficult. Construction, you know, construction again. We've had a lot of people leave the country in construction. Irish workers in in Australia, particularly Middle East, who haven't come back like we had this sort of you know circular thing going on people will go and come back and but people in construction have stayed in australia and the middle east and the uh, you mentioned quantity surveyors are a huge demand you know um i suppose the areas we're not seeing we're going to see the growth is probably you know the two that have been probably most impacted by the pandemic you know is hospitality and retail and um, they're you know they're They're particularly flat, and if if an organization as you mentioned there's lots of trucks on the road and stuff like that, they just can't simply afford it they, you know and, and they can't find the drivers you know so that's the you know the problem
2: mm. are, are there industries that are shedding jobs, whether through business decline, automation, where might the market be slower?
5: Yeah, so I suppose customer service is an area. Um, and i think this is a really interesting thing that's that's sort of happening you see organizations if they can't find people it drives them to create um, to create technology that actually fixes the problem and replaces not necessarily the people but certainly part of the jobs so you would see a lot now will you know we, we give out about Aircom and their or you know their their customer service and so or lack thereof, and and you get a lot of that, and you'll find it more and more when you try and ring these big companies. It's very difficult to get someone on the phone, but you will be able to have a chat on on the um, on the website with them and have a, which is built by chatbot. So those jobs, particularly when we look at the US, they're declining dramatically, um, and a lot of automation is coming in there, and any any areas where companies can create automation. They, they're really trying to to do it because the lack of talent is is driving them to do that. You know, um, it's not necessarily that much cheaper, but it's just more efficient, and you know they don't have to keep replacing um, replacing people.
2: Is it sustainable? Because we can recall, for instance, in the nineties, a manufacturing boom that mm. then declined because when. The EU expanded into Eastern Europe and those markets opened up. Suddenly, cheaper labour was available and, hey, presto, those companies were gone. So could the same happen again?
5: I I think Ireland is actually in a really interesting um, position. When we look across the water at the UK, right, the UK's growth rates are at effectively 0% at the moment. Ours in 2021 was 14%. Now it's going to drop, that was sort of artificially inflated with, um, with multinationals. It's going to be around 6.5%, 7%. So we're actually growing quite quickly. And I suppose the central bank's figures would say we're going to grow for the next three years. Well, if you look at the international um, outlook, it's quite poor. Like, uh, you know, we had some international commentary the other day talking about pot- potentially a recession on the way, on the back of COVID-19, um, but Ireland is, you know, in a strong position from that perspective. But is it sustainable to have, you know, upwards of 6 to 10% increases in salaries year-on-year? Year? Uh, no, I don't, I, I don't think so. And, you know, the costs for employers, you know, if you're looking, you're looking at salary hikes, fuel hikes, power hikes, you know, and all the legislation that, that's built into that... It's becoming very expensive to do business, you know, so um, and that just has an impact because people are looking at their at their bottom lines. And I wouldn't underestimate, you know, in the next couple of months as the as the, uh, you know, wage subsidy schemes and those type of things are, are unwound. You will see casualties in quite a lot of businesses as as, as the costs have increased.
2: And that widens the chasm, doesn't it? Because. The majority of people in this country are employed by small and medium enterprises. And okay, some of them are doing quite well, but not everybody is performing as the big multinationals do and don't have the resources financially to give these pay increases. But the expectation is raised everywhere by these headline figures. Yeah,
5: and, and that's why look I think you know, it's the usual type of thing. Like when you look, you drill down into those numbers, the average is probably three or four percent. You know what I mean? But someone has plucked twenty percent and stuck it at the top of a, a newspaper article. Um, doesn't do anyone any favors because, well, you know, I think it creates unrealistic sort of uh, ambition for people. And employers are sitting there looking at all these costs that have increased, and someone's coming in saying, well. I said in the newspaper yesterday that, you know, I'm 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 gonna get, you know, a, a large increase, you know, so and but the issue at the moment is that what quite a lot of employers are just, you know, just to get someone in the door are paying are paying um a lot more, you know, than than the use of within our own industry, within recruitment. we, we it's the same thing. People are, you know, looking to pay pay more and move people into internal roles in, in recruitment so it's, it's not it's, it's every sector and I'm, I'm sure all the, the, the best radio DJs are, are in the same boat well you know sort of all, all on the increase
2: <laughs> Final one for you because a few employers have asked this do you expect more interest in perhaps the lower end jobs the hospitality I shouldn't say lower end but at the moment lower demand jobs in hospitality retail once pop is fully unraveled, the pandemic unemployment payment
5: so we're at, like uh, I haven't seen the latest figures now and in, in but we were down to about sixty thousand people um on on pop so from a high of six hundred thousand right so and we haven't seen that many people go into it i I do think people will uh, that 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 will ease a little bit but i will say the, the problem for hospitality and retail is huge amounts of people have moved from those industries in the last 18 months so because look a lot of people you know who were on PUP from had come from hospitality worked in a restaurant they've moved from that you know um and that's that's where there's a sort of a chasm as well um and i think when we when we see um hospitality open up hopefully this summer you know in a big way you know we said it two years in a row now mm. it hasn't happened but I think if COVID lifts hotels restaurants like we, we see it already like they're under tremendous pressure um, and I think we need to come up with a way of attracting international talents um, to Ireland from further afield in the EU because nowadays like 15 years ago will we used to go to Poland and eastern europe and, and bring lots of people here to work in retail construction their economies are as, at the same level of ours as ours now in terms of salaries they're not coming anymore you know so we need to look much further afield and um like open up the work permit system more
2: it's a fascinating discussion trying to predict the future thanks for looking into the crystal ball colin donnery CEO of FRS Recruitment. Thanks for your time. Will, where in County Leash can you pick up the Midlands 103 breakfast calendar? Several locations, actually. Emmett Stores in Mount Melick, Paddy's News Agent beside Dunstores in Port Leash. While in Port Leash, check out Marley's. And all books, as well as the Grand Stand in Strad Valley, Centra Mount Wrath or Cleland's of Abbey Leaks. In fact, all the stockets, Leash Offaly and Westmeath, they're listed on midlands103.com and every last cent raised goes to the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and thank you to Home Instead in Offaly, Longford and Westmeath for their support in making that possible now especially over Christmas with all of the different packaging that you would have had how do you know which goes in which bin it's one of those headaches that I always have and try to figure it out when it comes to plastic packaging and paper and various other forms of waste what if you had an app that could make it all simple? I want you to meet Tanvi Sirajaniti from Our Lady's Bower in Athlone. She is one of the contestants in the BT Young Scientist competition. Good morning, Tanvi. How are you?
8: Good morning. I'm good. How are you?
2: Very well, thank you. Tell us about your idea.
8: Well, my idea is to help people find the correct bin for their rubbish.
2: How were you inspired?
8: Well, while I was researching for a project to do for BTS scientists, um, I was just thinking about climate change and how we could help and be more sustainable. And while thinking about it, I happened to notice that a lot of people put their rubbish in the wrong bin. So I just researched on it more and came up with the idea to um, create an app.
2: Will you walk us through the process of bringing an app from concept to completion?
8: Well, first, um, I did a survey in our school on how many people know which bin to put their rubbish into. And um, when I seen the results, I realised that people need something to help them.
2: Oh oh dear. um, how, How bad was the understanding among students?
8: Well, general waste, like most people knew, but there was still like, a lot that like uh, people needed to know and they were very confused.
2: So, therefore, a risk of contamination in the uh, various bins. So, what was your next step?
8: Well, my next step was to see how I could help it and when I searched online, I found out that there were other apps as well, but I wanted to see how I could do it.
2: So... What was your starting point in designing the
8: app? Well, I want uh, the first part was to see how it, the app would actually work. Like, uh, would it like scan barcodes or take an image and then recommend the bin colour?
2: So you opted for the barcode approach. Uh, why did you go for that as opposed to maybe a photo option?
8: Well, I thought, for starters, that it's the coding probably would be a lot easier.
2: Makes sense, actually, yes. You'd have to have quite complex recognition software otherwise. And on the matter of coding, who took care of that?
1: Uh,
8: my dad helped me with that.
2: Oh, so you, uh, so you can code yourself then as well?
8: Uh, well, I've done a course before, but I'm not really good.
2: And is your dad a software engineer yeah ah that helps so once you have the code ready I presume you have to test it get feedback tell us about that
8: yeah. well we tested it ourselves first and we also asked some of my friends to test it
2: what did they and say then, um, were, were they happy or impressed or did they give you critical feedback as well
8: Well, naturally, at first, um, we had a few errors, but once we fixed it, it was pretty good.
2: So, the next stage, then, in entering the BT Young Scientist competition, how do you get on their radar?
8: Um, Well, my science teacher told me about the competition, and I found it very interesting, so I joined.
2: And how far into the competition are you at this stage?
8: Well, there's uh, judging interviews, and I finish my first one in the morning.
2: And was this entirely a solo project with you, or did some of your classmates contribute to assist with the research or otherwise developing it?
8: Uh, it was. Uh, it's a solo project. Well
2: done. Well done indeed. So is the app widely available?
8: Um, not quite. It's just a prototype that I have on my computer.
2: What's your big ambition? Would you like it to be on the app store, on the Android store?
8: Perhaps one day.
2: Has it changed the way you approach waste in your own house? Definitely. So what's the learning from the exercise overall?
8: Well, I learned that um, I also have been putting rubbish in the wrong bin, so I started like um, to put it in the
2: right bin. Excellent. I really wish you the best of luck in the competition. It's continuing for its fifty eighth year, believe it or not, and I hope you go far. Tanvisri Surgenidi of Our Lady's Bar in Athlone, thank you for taking our call. Thank you so much. Sit back this evening and look at your T V. Is it A Samsung 55-inch, latest 4K, or is it perhaps a little bit sorry for itself? The luxury American-style fridge-freezer you've always wanted in your kitchen, or indeed those fine Whirlpool appliances from expert in Tullamore. €4,000 of luxury electrical appliances can be yours by turning €10 into €4,000. The draw is underway on midlands103.com. You can enter now... Or indeed, over the next two weeks. And the very best of luck to you. Uh, the draw, by the way, also supports Tullamore and District Rotary Club. So, portion of your contribution going to a great cause as well. Let's go back to the dreaded C word. We've steered reasonably clear of it today. And thankfully, and touch wood, this next conversation should be more on the optimistic than pessimistic side because ever since the Omicron variant emerged in South Africa only a few weeks ago, believe it or not, the initial reports have borne out. It seems to be a milder variant than its predecessors and does not infect as deep into the lungs, or even if into the lungs at all, as certainly the Delta variant. Let's see how this uh, pans out in Mullingar Hospital. Dr. Murat kirke is the clinical director. Good morning, uh, Dr. Kirker. What are you seeing on the ground?
0: Well morning, Will. Yeah, what we're, what we're seeing, unfortunately, still are high numbers um, coming in January anyway to our hospital, especially with the Omicron wave. We see a lot of patients coming to ED and we're admitting a lot of patients still onto our wards. But you're right with your introduction. There seems to be a, a bit of hope now at this stage, and... Um, especially the vaccinated patients, when they come to the hospital, they don't get as sick. We don't see um, an uprise um, in the admissions to our intensive care units, which is, which is a positive thing. And this is probably due to two things. As you know, it's, it's in the press all over. Um, Omicron is not as dangerous. It appears not to be as dangerous as the, as the Delta variant. You're right. It doesn't seem to be affecting the lungs as bad as Delta did. But we think also due to prior infection or especially the vaccination and the booster, we have a certain immunity and um, patients are doing much better.
2: So how does that affect the way you treat patients?
0: Well, it's, it has an effect in terms of um, on the wards. Uh, we see that the requirement for oxygen is much less, um, whereas with Delta wave, we had um, a lot of patients needing oxygen and what we call high flow oxygen as well. And that has come down. Um, we don't need to bring them to the intensive care unit. We don't have to ventilate them. Um, so that's, um, that has been all um, a, positive, a positive improvement. However, um, we shouldn't forget, people still do get sick. Um, and some older, frail or with comorbidities do end up in the hospital and they will need treatment. Um, and the numbers are quite high. And that is our problem at the moment um, that we're seeing a lot of admissions onto our ward. Um, but the deterioration is not as bad as it was with the Delta variant.
2: Is Delta still a factor?
0: We're not checking every patient. Um, you need to, it's, it's, um, it's, it needs a, it's quite a task if you want to um, check every patient if it's Delta or Omicron. <clears throat> Given the data that we have from other countries, we have to assume that at this stage almost everybody... Who has COVID? We're assuming that it's the Omicron variant. Delta uh, will be will be gone more or less very very soon, and Omicron already has taken over.
2: So we've talked about the patients. What impact has it had on staff?
0: Yeah, that's 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 a big problem for us at the moment. Uh, staff absenteeism is uh, is a huge problem. In the first week in January, um, for example, fifteen percent of our staff was out either. Having contracted uh, COVID, COVID positive, or being symptomatic, um, so that that has put a huge uh, burden onto the staff who are around um, and have to have to lift the weight uh, of the others um, who are unfortunately have to isolate at home. That has been the the one of the major problems of this wave um, that we have um, not enough staff to deal with all the patients.
2: There is an expectation that once the cabinet concludes its meeting today, ministers will have approved an easing of the close contact requirements at least for those who are booster vaccinated. If that happens, how much will it help you?
0: It will help us a great deal. as I said, 15 percent of the staff out if it's 170 frontline staff and and, and, and background staff as well will we all need. Um, it will make a huge difference. Because we are continuing to be busy. Um, I would like to reiterate, we're we're not over the woods yet. Um, The the numbers coming to ED are very, very high. Um, It has a knock-on effect on the wards. We have um, a very high number of COVID patients on the wards still. Um, And and unfortunately, uh, it has an impact on outpatients and scheduled care as well. For example, the last two weeks, we had to cancel our outpatient department due to staff shortages. So it will be a great help.
2: COVID may be the disease dominating the headlines, but the others haven't gone away. And when we last spoke on this programme, Dr. Kirke, you told us about RSV and its impact on children. So what are your paediatric numbers like? The
0: paediatric numbers, the RSV has... Come down a little bit. They're not too bad. Interestingly enough, with Omicron, we're seeing a few paediatric patients being admitted. So it seems to be a shift uh, shift in the disease, but it's too early to say that. Uh, but our paediatric department has been exceptionally busy in the last uh, last few months.
2: And what else is going on beyond that? I'm mindful it's January. We've had a few cold, slippery mornings. Are, are you seeing trauma cases, broken bones and so on?
0: That, that's always there. I mean, um, January is, is one of our busiest months in the year anyway. So at any time our ED department is, is under pressure. So as you mentioned, of course, we see trauma cases. We see patients who have chronic lung disease. This is the time in the winter when, when asthma, when your chronic bronchitis exacerbates. We see, of course, we continue to see heart attacks and strokes. All these patients have to be catered for and we shouldn't forget. Um, even though Omicron does not seem to be leading to many deaths, as the Delta variant did in the past, we still have to look after the other patients. And if we have a lot of Omicron patients in the hospital, that puts a pressure on all the other services.
2: And we were blessed last winter with very low uh, flu cases, if indeed any flu cases at all locally. Yeah. Is that the pattern again this year or is it more of an issue?
0: It's a bit early to to call it yet. My feeling is, or our experience here at the moment is as well, that we're seeing reduced numbers than in comparison to previous years. Obviously, what the public is adhering to, um, social distancing, mask wearing, hand hygiene, helps not only against COVID, but against all the other um, viral illnesses as well. And we see the impact of that, and, and that is certainly helpful.
2: What else can we do to help you and your colleagues through our behaviour and our actions and indeed if, unfortunately, an emergency does occur?
0: Definitely. So, first of all, our ED department is very, very full. Um, Please try and utilise my doc. Maybe go to your pharmacy if you have minor symptoms, if that can be dealt with. Try and avoid the emergency department. However, I would like to give the clear message. The emergency department is always open if you have any concerns, if you're worried. Please do come, and you will be seen based on the clinical priority. If it's rather something minor, there could be um, waiting times. We do not offer uh, PCR tests. Please do not come to the ED department to get a PCR test to find out if you have COVID or not. So these are the things uh, that would be very help us uh, to, would help us um, in the RED department. The other thing, obviously, is please continue to adhere to the public health guidance, and most importantly, and I cannot stress this out, Omicron may not be as dangerous as Delta. It is still dangerous if you have comorbidities, if you are elderly, if you're frail, but also in younger patients, it can lead to significant disease still. The numbers are a bit lower, but it doesn't mean that you're completely safe. But we have certainly the experience here. If you are vaccinated, if you have the booster, you have great protection. So please do get your vaccine if you haven't done so far, and please do get your booster. It helps you, it helps others, and it helps us in the hospital as well.
2: And finally, Dr. Kirke, for you and your colleagues, how's morale? how is morale? How are the energy levels holding up?
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's tough, there's no doubt. Uh, I mean, the, the, our staff here in the hospital and like in any other hospital in, in the country have, have done an outstanding job. I mean, it's been two years. It's relentless. Um, it's one wave after another. The fourth or the fifth wave, we're losing count. We're running out of uh, letters in the alphabet of the uh, the Greek alphabet. It's it's difficult. Whenever you hear the numbers are rising at home, you get a bit worried. Our our staff, you feel the impact. Um, They're doing a great job and they will continue to do so. So please do whatever you can do to help us as well.
2: Dr. Kirke. to you and your team, thank you very much for all the work you do. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. much. Dr. Murat Kirka is clinical director at the Midlands Regional Hospital in Mullingar. Now, still on the agenda today, antisocial behaviour never goes away. It's always coming up before uh, council meetings and uh, joint policing committee meetings. And what exactly is the issue this time and what solution is being called for? Here's one to raise your blood pressure. Volunteers in Westmeath who are facing continuous antisocial behaviour say they're at a loss as to what to do about it. The issue is being raised by Fine Gael councillor Emily Wallace. She says it's persistent at two particular social clubs where young people, some as young as eight, are verbally abusing the volunteers and throwing stones at people and at property. And while the Gorthy have tried to intervene, a long-term solution has yet to be found. Have a listen and tell me what you would do about this. This is Councillor Wallace speaking with Midlands 103's Ellen Butler.
9: We have a real issue where um, there are young children, some children as young as eight and nine, where there is verbal intimidation um, happening to members as they are entering the exiting club itself. There's also been issues of throwing of missiles at cars and at people and of... Uh, members as they're going about their activities within the club itself now the garage have been informed and in fairness to them they have done a patrol to the area but it's ongoing it's happening regularly every week we are in you know getting some form of complaints of what is happening at the club itself so i suppose what happens is as an adult you come out and you know, parents are coming out with their children, many of whom are underage, and they're being met with young children who are also un- young and underage, um, and their hands are tied as to what to do. Um, Saturday morning, in particular, was one instance that I know had happened where an adult was approached by a youth. He was told to leave the area because he was, um, he was trespassing, and he turned around and said, make me, and I'll go get my brother and beat you up. So, you know, mm. just the brazenness and the the lack of understanding to what they're doing is a worry. And it seems to be coming much more regular. Yeah, it um, seems quite and serious
1: and regular. So it's not something you can just, you know, snuff off like it. this is something that's just going to have to be dealt with.
9: It, it is. And like, I mean, you've parents say at night coming out from the club in the dark. They, the, the club, in fairness, have done everything. They've gotten, they've gotten the anti-climbing paint. They have put fences around, they have floodlights, I mean they're breaking floodlights, they're damaging uh, property on the premises and then you have situations where missiles have been thrown not just at the users of of the club itself but also at the cars as they're leaving, spitting intimidation, you know approaching young kids and parents at the gate who now we have set up a situation where, and it's not just this club but there are other clubs that are also experiencing similar when you're, you know what I mean, you're hearing similar throughout the country not just the county Mm, um, among youth
1: and And is there anything you would suggest I suppose Emily is it I suppose an intervention in terms of the young people themselves or or what do you think could be done to combat this
9: I don't know I, I don't mean I don't know I mean we have soccer clubs we have athletic clubs we have youth clubs we have GA clubs all within the area there is programmes there I'll ask parents do you know where your kids are in the evening do you know what they're doing during the day you know, I know during COVID we're inclined to, you know, let them off or whatever, but there is a real instance of, of just kids being this fun and just having the fun, but then there's a different level now that seems to be creeping into society. And it's not good for us in general as a society because we have got great community groups there and we've got great sporting organisations. have There's a lot of money has been invested in these groups and in youth clubs. And mm-hmm. we want to give every child the opportunity to take part and their parents, you know, to be involved and especially now with Covid, where isolation is happening. We don't want a group of certain cohorts of people allowing that not happen.
2: Councillor Emily Wallace, how do you fix that? Maybe you've had to fix it in the past. What is the solution? Now, details coming up in the news at 12 of that Cabinet decision regarding the close contact rules. You'll find out exactly what's happening in eight minutes' time. Before that... Substandard government contracts are causing a shortage of home care staff for the public sector. So says Sinn Féin TD Circa Clark. She believes what the state is offering private companies is not enticing enough so that carers will meet the demand. 575 people in the HSE's CHO Area 8 that includes the Midlands counties. They've been approved for a carer but Still haven't been assigned one. Midlands 103's Joe Caulfield was speaking with the Longford Westmeath TD about what she feels the government needs to do to improve the situation.
1: So we know there's been a looming crisis within this home care system as such, and it's been growing over the last number of years, and it really has spiralled during the pandemic. And of these 575 people, each one of these individuals has a right to be able to leave a full independent life and to receive that sufficient care that they need to do that. But because the government has consistently failed to prepare to plan properly for this looming crisis, which we knew was coming, but also the impact that the pandemic was going to have, we now have a situation where those who are most in need are paying the price for this inability to manage the situation properly. One of the contributing factors to this is the contracts of employment that has been offered to those who work in this area. And this is a really vital area. We need people and we need good people to be working in this area. But that needs to be reflected in the terms of conditions and employment practices in which they are operating. And that's not happening at the moment so what we need to see now is the government to engage with these private and community voluntary based home care providers to ensure that the workers in this area are on a level path a level playing field with those directly employed by the HSE because at the moment they're not and it's not attracting the number of people that we need into this service to be able to meet the demand
10: so the 575 people who have been approved for a carer but are are yet to be assigned one how long are they waiting
1: It can be anything from a number of weeks actually up to, I know of one family in particular who have been waiting a a number of years for a younger member of their family to receive the amount of hours that they have been approved for. We need to stop burying our head in the sand here. This is a serious issue and it needs to be prioritised because those who are older or those with disabilities they need the support to be able to live a full and independent life and that really is what the issue is here. We have individuals who are approved, have a recognised need that they need this home care service but there are nobody available to actually provide that service so what you'll ultimately see is people moving towards residential care earlier than what they needed to do or to simply go back into a hospital system which again doesn't allow them to live that independent life that they could do if they had the correct supports in place.
10: Okay, and what are the government what's the government's plan to alleviate this situation? What's the current plan to get these five hundred and seventy five people in the CHO area eight the assistance they need?
1: Well, what the government will consistently say is that there are opportunities within that private and community service to meet this need. The issue is, however, that if you speak with any of those who work in this service, that their terms and conditions are significantly lower than those who are directly employed by the HSE. For example, you could have um, a home care worker who isn't paid for their travel time between different clients. So that's a cost that they have to absorb themselves. It's hours that they're not being paid for despite the... fact that they are technically in work they're just not in a client's home and that's not a situation that's going to encourage more people to move into that area that needs to be rectified it's only one of the issues that's there but it is a major issue particularly in areas like Longford Wade, where we have such a rural community
10: okay so reaching out to the private sector companies to increase the, the level of support is one way but what about within the health services itself Where's the, um, where are the yeah. number of, of carers? Now, I, I, I understand that COVID has put huge pressure on all resources across the HSE, but why do we need to go to private companies to outsource this in the first place?
1: That's an excellent question, Joan. It's a one. It's not. A, it's not a scenario that I would have agreed. To. I think these carers should be directly employed by the HSE. It's something that would have happened historically in the past on an ongoing basis. However, the decision was made by government to outsource this to the private sector. Why? And it's not working.
10: Why was Why? that decision made initially?
1: I I would say it was a cost-cutting exercise that was the predominant influence in that decision.
10: So where do we take it from here? You're calling on the government to make these changes, I'd imagine, as soon as possible. What's your hopes for getting action on this?
1: The government need to start at the very basics here, and that's understanding and appreciating the level of need that somebody has to display and to show before they are approved for home care services. When that is recognised, then what comes after that is ensuring that those who provide that service in an individual's home is properly valued, be that through their terms and conditions, be that through the amount of um, earnings that they have, But because we have this dual system between the HSE and the private sector, where there is such a disparity between terms and conditions and employment potential, you are not going to attract people into an area where they don't feel valued. So we now have this crisis that's emerged between those who need this service, yet not being able to provide the service because the terms and conditions in some private providers are so poor.
2: Now, that is Sinn Féin TD for Longford Westmeath, Circuit Clark. It's a conversation I'd like to continue with you tomorrow, especially if you have applied for home care and you find the delays unacceptable. If you work in the sector and you can flesh out for us what the challenges are, trying to make a living, what pay rates are like, general terms and conditions, or if you're trying to indeed operate one of those companies, you'd have a different perspective as well. But it's an important issue, one we will come back to. Thank you, Joe Caulfield, for putting it all together. Thank you, most of all, for listening. Let's chat tomorrow morning from nine. Carl James coming next with the afternoon show. And he'll be telling you how to turn 10 euro into 4,000 euro at midlands103.com.